Good on you, Liani. G'day, everyone. I think that's the first time I've ever heard someone get a woo as they were getting up to read the Bible. <laughs> then she turned around, and then I think it clicked. Something about South Africa. <laughs> Makes sense of a whole row of green up there. Did South Africa do something significant in the world? <laughs> they won the cricket last night. Well, they did, actually. And they, I take it they, they won the, uh, the rugby. There you go. Uh, good to be together, brothers and sisters, unified in Christ. Good to come to this word. Uh, let me pray, and we'll dive into it. Our Father, we do thank you for the many good things that we enjoy in our lives. As we come together right now, we, we confess that we have many things that we are consumed by, distracted by, and ask that you might be our teacher, that we might hear your voice clearly, uh, to be able to see with spiritual eyes things that we wouldn't otherwise see, and to not just see them, to, to respond rightly to them. Uh, that you would get the glory you deserve, that we would live the lives that you intend for us. So we ask for this work by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, last week in the preaching, uh, we were concerned to add a load to our lives, do you remember? The load of the unseen but coming eternal judgment of God, the eternity of hell, a load for our lives to carry, which then brings perspective This morning, it's my concern to actually amplify a longing in your life. I actually want to dial up a dissatisfaction in every one of our lives that we might know our purpose for them. And the longing that I want to dial up is the longing to be home. There is no place like home goes the expression, right? I experienced that this week. I was away on our staff conference Uh, where leaders of church were getting to pray and prepare for another year of pushing the gospel work forward here. And as good as the time was, as great as the people are, I couldn't wait to get home. And it was so good to come home and to experience the excited welcome of the dog. (laughs) Slowly the kids made their way out. Uh, Good to see my wife. It was good to be back in my bed, to be eating familiar food. There is no place like home especially for an introvert. Uh, And it's why we actually feel the pain when home is not what we long for it to be, because it's not meeting our deepest longings to be refreshed, to be safe. Last week, we focused on what we have been saved from, the judgment of God. This week, we look at what we have been saved to, our spiritual heavenly home. And we could go to all numbers of places in the Bible to see this, but we're just going to camp out in this one passage in Philippians there, so make sure that you've got it open in front of you so that you can see that what I'm saying is from the Word of God, where I want to bring to you three big things about our spiritual heavenly home, which build on each other, which depend on each other and get very practical for us. So number one, we see here the longing to get home, The longing to get home. That's captured in Paul's metaphor, verse 12 to 14, where he describes this life that he is living 2,000 years ago as a race. So there was a start line, there is a finish line that he's straining towards. He's not there yet. He presses on, he forgets what's behind, he fixes his eyes forward to reach the goal 
to win the prize for which God has called him heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's life, summed up as not being home yet. And so he strains, he longs to get home, to be in heaven. This part, among many other parts of Paul's writing, make really clear that Paul had a huge dissatisfaction with life in this world. A huge dissatisfaction. And not because he was stuck in the first century, you know, where they didn't have iPhones and Netflix and cars that drive themselves yet, where they weren't enlightened and liberated by technology. Not because of that. Paul, he got crystal clear that this life in this world cannot be our home. In fact, it's such a hostile environment if we long for it to be a place that meets our deepest longings. See, imagine Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon. He arrives on the moon, he gets out, he starts taking those steps, but then he rips off his space helmet and he cuts himself off from the oxygen line. He very quickly works out that he's an alien and a stranger on this rock, that this is not his home, that he was not made for it. His lungs start burning with alienation, yeah, as he dies very quickly. But here's the thing, on his return home to earth, he was still an alien. He just died a bit more slowly. See, life in this world is marked by the presence of death. And we try and avoid it, but it is this dramatic statement that this is not our home that it cannot meet the deepest longings of our heart to have significance for our lives, to matter, to count for something. How could they if our lives are just snuffed out after a, a few short years, 80, 90 if you're lucky? Well, maybe the significance that we have is the legacy that we leave behind for future generations. Maybe that's where we find our meaning. Well, there was an ancient Bible writer who observed that that doesn't work either. This is written 3,000 years ago, where the writer, the teacher of Ecclesiastes, says no one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I've seen all things done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, are chasing after the wind. Bound up in our desire for our lives to, to matter is that they might have permanence, that they might therefore be remembered, be known and endure. And the presence of death mocks that. There's a line in a song by Josh Pike, you might be familiar with him, an Aussie artist, I find him a brilliant singer-songwriter. And it's a very touching song, a more recent way, where he's reflecting on his mum who has Alzheimer's, who is slowly forgetting forgetting him and he has this line that says if you don't know me who am I who am I who am I if my own mother doesn't know who I am that what does that do for my sense of identity of who I am because that's bound up in being known in being remembered to have significance death marks uh, mocks our, our longing for significance Another modern take on how to find meaning in life I found recently as I 
read a book by Tom Tilley, uh, who is a name that might be familiar to you if you're kind of my vintage, grew up listening to Triple J. He hosted the afternoon show Hack. Uh, he's a journalist, TV, radio presenter. He's now on shows like The Project and so on. And he, he writes a book, some memoirs, called Speaking in Tongues. And so I've just had a holiday, it was a chance to read something a bit different, and so it sparked my interest, and I grabbed that, and um, actually, um, confession, I didn't read it, I audio-booked it. Does that count as reading it? <laughs> no. <Nah. laughs> I, I, I consumed this book that Tom Tilly had read, but it was quite helpful because I'm driving long trip and got to listen to it in his voice, so uh, it was quite cool. But I found it a fascinating read for lots of reasons, but heartbreaking as well. It's called, it's called Speaking in Tongues. And he tells his story of growing up, being born into a family and a church that taught you must have the gift of speaking in tongues to go to heaven. If you don't speak in the heavenly language, the, the, the gift of tongues, you won't go to heaven. And so he's growing up longing to have this gift because otherwise I'm missing out on heaven. And, and so he starts faking it because that's what you've got to do, but then he feels like a fraud and a fake, and it's this tragic story when you know the truth of the gospel of him going, I don't want to be a fake, I don't want to be a fraud, and he, he slowly unravels and deconstructs and throws away the Christian message, the Christian hope, uh, where he lands, ends up deciding there is no God, there is no eternity, there is no heaven and hell, this is it. But the way that the story is told is like he arrives at this liberating moment where now he can live and live life to the full as he's thrown that off. The subtitle of the book is really telling. When you no longer believe in eternity, every moment counts. When you no longer believe in eternity, every moment counts. And I think that captures so much of the thinking around us as we pursue meaning in our lives. By cutting off eternity, by cancelling God, by only having this one life, well now every moment really matters because it will never come around again. It's so precious and so it's actually our finitude, our fleetingness, our limits that bring significance. A bit like the drive on holidays where we'd given the kids a small bag of lollies and so there's only two Freddos in it. There's only one snake in it. There's only two lollipops in it. It's a long drive. And so each of those few lollies, well, they meant a lot, didn't they? Because they had to make it last. If, if they were able to just reach into the boot with this kind of candy store, pff, the lollies wouldn't matter. That's the thinking that the people around us are bringing to find meaning in life. Because it is so brief, well, now every moment is precious. But this is a very different conclusion from thinkers who face the reality of death in generations past. I've showed you one example from the teacher in Ecclesiastes 3,000 years ago. But you only need to go back to the last century, 20th century atheism. And here's a prominent thinker of the time. His name is Albert Camus. He's a French philosopher. And it's a lengthy quote, but I want to bring it to you. And I know, wow, Sunday morning philosophy, it's pretty thick. But see if you can make sense of it. I'll, I'll try and sum it up in a moment. It's, it's very telling. He says, beauty is unbearable. It drives us to despair. 
offering us for a minute the glimpse of an eternity that we should like to stretch out over the whole of time. But we do not have that consolation. Why do we have the eagerness to live in limbs that are destined to rot? For most men, the approach of dinner, the arrival of a letter or the smile of a passing girl are enough to get around it. But the man who digs into ideas finds that being face to face with the fact of death gives rise to disgust and revulsion. But that is profound. This is an atheist. This is a man who believes in YOLO. You only live once. There is no eternity. There is no God. But do you see what he's saying? Beauty is unbearable. Why? Because we experience things that are good. But why do the good times always have to end? Why don't the things that really are beautiful, that we long would just go on and on, why are they mocked by the end of death? This guy is saying that this is crushing to the spirit because we have a sense that we are made for much more than just living in limbs that rot. And so notice what he says most people do to deal with the crushing of the spirit on this reality. Distraction. Drink, food, sex, Netflix. That's what most of us do to get around this crushing. But the person who really thinks on what the presence of death in this world means for their life, for their significance, for this to be home, it's crushing. And see, Camus, not a Christian, is actually giving voice to what the Bible says that every human being has been made in the image of God and God has set eternity into the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. Creatures, yes, but creatures made for an eternity, which helps make sense of those longings that we have for the good times to endure, for the hard times to be gone, for our lives to matter. Having just gone through Genesis, we've seen this, haven't we? Genesis 2 makes this plain. We were made for a home that we've lost. We were made for a home that we've lost. Humanity in the presence of God, intimate presence, no no sin, no shame between each other, between God, enjoying relationship with him, pictured with God walking with them in the cool of the day in the garden. Genesis 3. Sin, which has broken things... (laughs) Uh, more than we can imagine, more than we appreciate. Alienated now from the home that we're made for, living in a life marked by sin and death. The presence of death in this world means it's a rotten home. It cannot sustain the deepest longings of our heart any more than life on the moon. Paul got this so clearly. And so he longed and strained toward his spiritual home, the home of heaven, which will be a whole new creation. Have a look there, verse 20. He speaks of the hope, the future time when Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. If you've thought of heaven as just some ethereal, mystical, spiritual floating around, no thanks, I'd rather just make the most of this life now. You haven't understood the hope of the Christian message, which is a new heavens and earth, 
God has shown that he can and has created once. And the resurrection of Jesus is God's statement that he's determined to do it again. And for those who have the hope of heaven, will enjoy transformed, resurrected, glorious bodies like Jesus. Bodies that are suited for the home to live with God forever. Not to get bored. To think of heaven as like this boring groundhog day, I'd rather just make the moment of most of every moment now, just gives expression to our sin, to how little we've appreciated who God is. But the hope of the Christian message is transformed bodies. The lowly bodies that we're in now that get sick, that get old, that die, will be forever replaced with bodies that are like Jesus. In a home that really will meet our deepest longings. And so to live life in the here and now, expecting our deepest longings to be met, will be bitterly disappointing. It will not work. It doesn't work. We're experiencing that. Paul got this clear, but here's the thing. It'll be more than just disappointing to settle for less than a heavenly home. We see that in the second point here. There's the longing in each one of us to get home, which summed up Paul. Here's the second point, the way to get home. Like Jesus, Paul lays out two paths Two categories of people, two futures for every human being and only two. And if you want to say, oh, I like Jesus, not Paul, you just haven't read Jesus and Paul side by side. Paul is echoing his Lord here, who in verse 18, he says, I've often told you before and I'll tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. There's the first part. Do you remember Jesus says, wide is the road that leads to destruction and many are on it. Narrow is the path that leads to life, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. Paul, like Jesus, speaks of the way that leads to destruction with tears in his eyes reflecting God's own heart who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But notice here, people aren't on this path to destruction because they've just taken a few wrong turns here and there. And whoops, how did I find myself here? They're described as enemies of the cross of Christ. Our problem is we hear that and we think, oh, that's the angry atheist who who rages against God and, and, and waves their fist at him. Well, you can be a hostile enemy, but you can also be a polite enemy who just belittles and sidelines and says, yeah, nah, God. Oh, that's good for you, Christian. Good, good for you to have your thing and your hope and your God. I've got mine. But either way is to fail to embrace the cross of Christ, which is to fail to embrace a saviour from sin, which means you will stand before a holy God unforgiven. The message of last week. He fleshes out this second way that leads to destruction. Verse 19, their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Now, of course, Paul wrote this to a first century church in Philippi. It's called Philippians. It has a historical context. 
And it's likely that in the original context, Paul is referring to people who had come into the church saying that, oh yeah, yeah, you need Jesus, but then you need to add these religious laws about food and drink, what you do and don't eat, religious ceremonies and acts and so on. You don't just need Jesus. So religious rules about food and drink, probably what he means by the stomach. You need to be circumcised. Probably the shame, referring to private parts. But the thing about these people that we can draw by extension is that they have had a way of life that they have elevated above God. They've had, this is how you live life, to be a good person, to be an acceptable person, maybe to be accepted by God. But that way, which is rules about what we do or don't do, that has become God instead of knowing the one true God. And so their mind is set on earthly things. These religious laws or these ways to live, they're just man-made things. They don't have any endurance or significance. Now the problem is not thinking about earthly things, having earthly concerns. The problem is being set on them. So that they become the horizon, that they become the extent of our reality. Earthly things that are here for a moment and gone. Our community is awash in this living, as I've already made the point. So what is the way to the home that we all long for, the spiritual home of heaven? It's right there, isn't it? It's the cross of Christ. It's to be someone who recognises your need for forgiveness before a holy God and who sees God as having provided the Saviour in the Lord Jesus who dies his death on your behalf to take your guilt, to cover your shame, to bring forgiveness full, final and eternal if you would look to a Saviour. is the opposite of being an enemy of the cross of Christ. It's to recognise that you have no hope on your own and to look to a Saviour, to trust in him. Faith in the Christ of the cross is the only way home. Do you know this hope? Do you know this certainty? As you sit in your chair this morning and you ask yourself, am I confident that when my time is up and I stand before God that I will be welcomed into an eternal spiritual home that I long for? You can have confidence. You can leave here confident of that day if you would put your trust in a saviour, if you would cry out for mercy. Do that. Come to Explaining Christianity Tuesday night to explore this more. You can have certain full hope now of a spiritual home to come. So there's the first point, our longing. It's not here. Home is not here. It's in heaven. There's the way to trust in the work of Christ. Here's the third thing. It's the wait to get home. What do we do until we get there? What ought our lives be marked by? Three things that jump out from the passage. Number one, it's there in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm in the Lord. Therefore, remember, as we learn to read the Bible carefully, he's following on from what has just been said that this is not home, that we strain and press on towards our heavenly home with resurrection bodies, with every longing met. Therefore, stand firm now. 
Stand firm in the Lord. No matter how your life is going, but especially in the midst of hardship, stand firm in the Lord. The gospel is true. It's one of the tragic things I found in this book from Tom Tilley as he's, he's, he's slowly throwing out the gospel. And he, he actually asks the critical question. He goes, um, I, I get it. it's not about tongues, is it, or experiences. I guess it's about whether this is true. I'm like, yes. And then he says, as he was sitting in his chair, I just decided it wasn't. Oh, no. Uh, Investigate. Look into this. There are historical evidences for why this is true, why you can have confidence in these words. And so, stand firm. The tomb is empty. The cross really did what God said it did. Forgive us of all our sins. Jesus really is raised to life in a glorious body, the preview of what is coming for us if we would look to him. He really does sit at the right hand of God the Father, ruling over everything in a real body right now. And he is returning because he has the power to bring everything under his control. Friends, the gospel is true. Stand firm. A week in the world is a long time. A week on the central coast whose God is their stomach, whose glory is in their shame, that's a long time. Where, where we, we get sucked into that way of thinking and living, don't we, that it's all about here and now, where our minds become set on earthly things. How critical, therefore, is this every week that we would come and that we would have our gaze lifted to true spiritual eternal realities. More than once a week as we get together in groups. A week in the world is a long time. We desperately need this activity of church. Stand firm in the Lord. Secondly, second thing to do as we wait is to eagerly await. You see that verse 20 where he's described the way, the, the identity of the person whose home is in heaven, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's continue to get personal here. If you're a follower of Jesus, can this be said of you? Do you eagerly await his return? Do you eagerly await the finish line and your spiritual home of heaven? Often when things start to go really bad in this life, that can awaken us more and more to that and we, we start to become... But what if things are going really well for you? Are you still eagerly awaiting your saviour from heaven? Eagerly awaiting to get home? Or is Jesus more like your bus pass? It just stays in your pocket. You only need to pull it out when you need to get somewhere. Other than that, no thought about it. All of us fail to long for him as we ought, of course. So what's the answer? Well, we don't love what we don't know. We don't long for what we don't know. The reason you love and long for the next holiday to that favourite destination is because you've been there, you know it, you've tasted it, you've experienced it, you can't wait for more of it. If you don't know the Lord Jesus now, 
Why would you expect to long for his return, to know him fully? If your life is so crammed with the things of here and now, earthly things that are here and gone, if, if relationships and work and sport and renovating and all these things stop you from giving yourself to the people of God, is it any surprise that you're not eagerly awaiting the return of the Lord? And so, as we eagerly await, that will mean maturing in our faith, being intent to press on to grow, not being content with where we're at, but to grow deeper in our knowledge of the Lord, not an idea about how to live, not religious rules, but actually deeper in our knowledge of the Lord as we meet him on the pages of Scripture, that we might more and more long to meet him face to face. Are you doing that? Maybe you've had seasons of that. That's why it's helpful to hear Paul's forgetting what's behind. He presses on. He's never done. He's never satisfied. Are you giving yourself intently to maturing in the faith? Here's the third thing that eagerly awaiting means. It's not idleness. It's not just, I guess, we'll we'll wait and see when he comes. I'll, I'll get on with my life. Have a look at what's driving so much of this for Paul. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. What's driving his longing for his spiritual home of heaven? It's not a resurrection body, though he says he's going to get that. It's not that every tear will be wiped away, though that will be true. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. That's what drives him. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. Oh, that sounds great. To know Christ and the power of his resurrection. What what does that mean? What kind of victorious living must that mean for my life? Well, it's explained by the next few words. And participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. That's what knowing the power of the resurrection meant for Paul. That he would willingly embrace a sacrificial life of love. Like his Lord. Who for the joy set before him, the Lord Jesus, endured the cross. And so Paul, as he eagerly, he stands firm, he pushes forward, he sacrificially gives himself in love. Why? Because it's all coming for him in the future. Anything he gives up now, he won't, be, he won't fail to be rewarded ten times, a hundred times, a thousand times. The Lord Jesus promises that in our heavenly home. And so he gave himself sacrificially in love that more and more people might hear of their Saviour, the cross of Christ, might be ready and long for their spiritual home. And so what does he call his readers to do? Verse 17, Join together in following my example. He's followed the example of Jesus. He now calls his readers to follow his example. Brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, that's Paul, that's the apostles, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. This is significant. The scriptures are our authority. This is where we come to meet the Lord, to hear from the Lord. Notice also, though, that the Lord is present among his people. That as his people live lives 
that honour him, that are in sync with his purposes, they actually become a model. They, they teach us about what longing for a home looks like. And so let me ask you that. Do you have anyone in your life that you keep an eye on as a model given their gospel hope? And if the answer is no, it's possibly because you haven't actually given yourself to the people of God to be, to be close enough to rub up against, to spot them, and to have models and to be stirred on. So I encourage you, give yourself, jump in. I have a number of people that I keep my eye on because they're a model that Paul says I'm to look to. Some of them are in this room before me now. There's a number of things I could point out, but I want to just draw out one thread that I've noticed. There's a common thread about you, and it's that you serve sacrificially, and the sacrificial part is because you give yourself to things that you wouldn't naturally want to do. Um, Let me make it with this point. Um, Think about a defence force. There's a massive difference between a defence force when it's recruiting during a time of peace versus a time of war. Uh, Defence force needs people, so it needs to recruit. During peacetime, the Australian Defence Force last year spent $60 million on advertising. I'm sure pretty much every one of us has seen at least one of them. You know those videos that are action-packed, where where you're going to have an adventure, where you're promised a rewarding career that will fulfil you deeply as you serve your country. Think about the Israeli Defence Force right now. Do you think they're pouring millions of dollars into sexy videos to try and appeal to people's (laughs) self-interest? They're like, we're at war, we're being attacked. Boots on the ground, get to it. Recruiting in wartime is a very different thing to peacetime. Spiritually speaking, what time are we in? Given the message of last week, eternal, real judgment, eternity in hell. Given the message of this week, what we've been saved to, eternal happiness where our every longing will be satisfied. We're much closer to wartime than we are peacetime, aren't we? If we would see with gospel eyes. Now there's nuance to bring because whilst 80, 90 years compared to eternity is nothing, it's not five years. It's more of a marathon than a sprint. We need rest. We have different capacities and circumstances in our life that will mean we, we can give ourselves in different amounts. And it's not wrong to enjoy good things as we receive them from the hand of God that point us to his goodness and our eternal home. But when you really get the gospel, you can't but embrace a life of sacrificial love, modelled after Jesus, after Paul, after many who have really got that and given themselves to it. E.V. Grow. This is a time where we're particularly focusing on who we are and what we're on about. Over the last 27 years, our church, under the gracious hand of God, would not be what it is today, would not have the impact and the blessing that it is without the sacrificial love of many men and women who have gone before us. 
and sacrificial in part because it hasn't necessarily been fun and fulfilling. Uh, At least my generation and up, we've been raised, we've been taught that you pursue a career that is fun and fulfilling. Why would you give yourself to a job that you hate when you've only got a few short moments? It must be fun, it must be fulfilling. The danger is we bring that mindset into serving the work of the Lord. Oh yeah, that, that sounds cool, that sounds good. If it's going to be fun and fulfilling. Uh, if, if I get to do some things that I don't get to do through the week, and so that'll be, that'll be a fun thing that I get to do there. But that's peacetime recruitment, not wartime recruitment. The Australian Defence Force has to compete with all the other options and appear like a sexier one. Serving the work of the Lord should not have to compete and look sexier when you get the gospel. And so many of you and who have gone before us have, have served in ways that they wouldn't naturally want to do. I mean, we, we saw that video, a kids program only ran at the start of church because Sydney people drove up and did it. Do you think that was convenient? Do you think that was fun and fulfilling? Loading their kids in the car, driving up the road. But look at what the Lord has done through them, through sacrificial love. This and many other examples. Let me put this to you because I do actually want to come to a particular need. And, and that is that Might sacrificial love in our work together mean serving in areas that you actually give yourself to in your job? Uh, It's one of the common things we come across. I do that through the week, so I'd rather do something fresh. Now, if you can find a ministry that is fun and fulfilling, that's, that's good. That's not bad. But is it possible that sacrificial love will go to where the needs are over your interests? So we have so many different teams. It's amazing to see the body come together and serve and really have an impact, as we've heard in that video. The IT team is one of them. Did you even know we have an IT team? Probably not. They're the most kind of behind-the-scenes, out-of-hours group. But um, whether you understand it or not, this whole property and facility only works because of IT people, right? The lights only turn on, the air conditioning only runs, the fire alarms, all of that stuff because of IT things. Now... As much as the, who am I going to pick on? Um, the good-hearted music school teacher um, really wants to serve on the IT team. If they don't have skills in this area, it's not going to work. They're not going to be able to move this work forward. We actually need people gifted and experienced who do that stuff likely through the week. Um, here's the one that I actually want to put a spotlight on unapologetically. It's our kids' ministry. We have such a great kids' ministry and so many of you giving yourself to it sacrificially. But some of us as parents go, oh, i got my own kids all week. I don't want to do that on the weekend at church. Or maybe I teach kids all week. I don't want to do that on the weekend. It's possible that you're the best people, we're the best people to do that ministry. We currently have 20 needs in our EV Kids ministry across Friday, Sunday, Scripture in schools. About half of them critical, urgent needs. There's so much good going on, but we need people to give themselves 
sacrificially in love, as so many people have done. People who get on the tools because that's what they do all week. But they're the ones who can build buildings, right? Uh, Let me just bring that need to you and urge you to consider how you might be a part of that as summer comes and summer fest comes and we need people to jump in and put shoulder to the wheel oh but that's the time I'd like to chill out and go on holidays it's amazing to see how many of you take annual leave to give yourself to this mission and for your encouragement there are people in church with us this morning thoroughly saved with the hope of eternity because someone invited them to summer fest and because they're their kids came to Summerfest and they came back, they came to life. What it, uh, when, you get, when you get the gospel, when our gaze is lifted up, when we remember that our longings will be met in our spiritual home, now is the time to serve sacrificially. And so let me urge us to think about how we might keep doing that, maybe start doing that. I want to give us a moment to do that, to reflect before the band will help us reflect in song. Take a moment to do that.